This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Welcome to Rika Media, Peter Kafka. That is me. I'm Peter Kafka. I'm speaking to you right now on this podcast. I'm talking to Alex Heath, reporter for The Verge, who is one of the initial parts of the Facebook Papers Consortium. Those are the folks tirelessly uh, turning reams of Facebook data, uh, photos of, of monitors with Facebook data, it turns out, um, into stories. Alex has written one already. He'll be writing many more over the next few weeks. I wanted to talk to him about the story he wrote, which is about uh, Facebook's worry that it is losing all of its younger users, which is true. Um, and also about the sort of story behind the story, how the folks are getting the data, what they're doing with it, what's going to happen next. Um, it's pretty interesting. I, I told him this would be like a 10-minute conversation. I think it's probably 20 and frankly, I could have talked to him for an hour about it. It's pretty fascinating. And then we take a hard right turn because I also talked to Heidi Gardner, who's on Saturday Night Live. Really interesting story about working at SNL now during the pandemic, how she got there, how she got into acting and comedy, which is an unusual story. It's not like everyone else who's gotten into acting and comedy has been on this show. Uh, she didn't go to Harvard. She didn't work at the Lampoon. Um, a lot of fun. She was fun to talk to. So you can either get two very different perspectives in the world in one hour, give or take here, or maybe you want to divide these up and listen to them in two different sessions. It's up to you because it's free and uh, you can do whatever you want. It's a podcast. Okay, thanks. Enjoy. I'm talking with Alex Heath, the excellent reporter who is now my corporate colleague. He works at The Verge after working at The Information and Cheddar. And where else? Was Cheddar your first job? Business Insider. Business Insider. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Um, anyway, I'm talking to Alex because one of the many stories he's written this week is one of the first pieces we've seen that have come out of the Facebook whistleblower data dump. We're not calling it the Facebook files. What are we calling it? The Facebook papers, Panama Papers style. If you are listening to this podcast, you are well aware there's a deluge of stories coming out based on documents provided by whistleblower Francis Haugen. Alex has written one of them. Um, we're recording this on Tuesday, so maybe by Thursday when you hear this, uh, uh, there'll be another one. Um, so let's talk about your story first, and then we can talk about the story behind the story. So Alex, you wrote about what? Um, yeah, so an interesting tranche of these docs was about how Facebook is existentially grappling <laughs> with this crisis that is an aging user base, um, which, you know, they have a lot of users, right? I think there's there's almost 3 billion daily users of the Facebook app alone. So, um, you know, I can understand not having a lot of sympathy for them. But internally, I was pretty interested by a lot of these documents showing that their own researchers, data analysts are kind of freaking out that their audience is aging faster than the populations uh, of their key markets and um, that they're kind of grasping for straws trying to figure out how to maintain relevance with younger people. And so I wrote about that. So you're looking at a, a series of, of, of emails, bulletin board discussions, chats. Presentations. Presentations. Yeah. One was given to Chris Cox, who's basically the number two guy at Facebook, saying, we've got a problem here. Our, our, our core audience is aging out. Now, that is something that people have been raising in discussions about Facebook almost since the beginning of Facebook. That is, Facebook got too big and too popular and too old. The young people would cycle out of it. Um, it's been sort of an anecdotal uh, statement of faith for a long time. If you've ever talked to a kid, they will tell you that Facebook is for old people. So what do you learn by watching Facebook employees talk about a thing that we all kind of know? Well, um, I like data. I like uh -huh. metrics. Um, 
especially if they're unreported. And there was a lot of that. And honestly, there was a lot that I didn't put in the story because it was just such a sheer amount of data dump. I mean, it should come as no surprise, but Facebook is obsessed with metrics. They're obsessed with uh, crunching data. And a lot of these presentations had very material, um, non-public data in there. Right. So there's obviously value in, in seeing data to back up things that we all sort of knew intuitively. And also um, product stuff that they're working on that they had not yet talked about. A lot of it's fairly cringy. I would say that some of these presentations, the vibe is like that meme, how do you do kids? It's like the energy is is that. Right, so Steve, and just kind of, Facebook is now Steve Buscemi trying to get the youngsters yeah, to hang. Yeah, and you know, like slides that are literally like, you know, a meme generator could potentially increase in engagement. Um, and, you know, teens like memes, right? And then also I thought what was a little alarming is that um, Instagram, which I think people think is still very strong with teens, and it is, um, they are fully saturated, which Facebook tracks um, UN population estimates to its own user base. And if it's fully saturated, that's what they call it. They're fully saturated with young people in a lot of their key markets, but they're losing engagement. Young people are using the app less and they're also producing less content, which is kind of in a social network that's kind of the worst thing that could happen because it could create this flywheel of uh, self-sustaining uh, decline. And so internally, this is a big, big problem for them. So you saw some mock-ups of sort of, here's some things we could do to try. Did anything look promising and or do you have a sense of, of what Facebook is actually doing about it? A lot of things you saw were proposals and ideas and memos. That's different than someone actually doing something. Um, a lot of it was fairly cringy, I'm not going to lie. The Instagram stuff is they're really leaning into um, multiple accounts, um, different identities, because young people are increasingly wanting to uh, be different versions of themselves and products like Finstas, exactly. Um, Discord, you can have different usernames and different Discord servers. And so they're leaning into that on Instagram um, in a big way. But yeah, I mean, in terms of... <laughs> If it's going to work, I ended this story with, you know, in this big presentation to Chris Cox earlier this year, the company's own data analysts were like, honestly, um, it's way too early to tell if any of this is going to be competitively effective. Uh, because internally, they're watching that time spent on TikTok among young people is 2 to 3x Instagram. And that Snapchat is the preferred method of communication with close friends among young people. And they're very scared about that. And so, um, honestly, this is more of a, this is a bigger discussion. We don't have to get into this, but it's also kind of a interesting, is Facebook a monopoly? Um, when you look internally at how they view their user base, they certainly don't seem to think so. Yeah, I mean, uh, you, you do have a couple different quotes there from the Facebook comms person saying, basically, like, we told you. We told you that TikTok's a real threat to us. We told you Snapchat's a real threat to us. They're not they're not excited about having their their laundry scattered uh, on everyone's laptop, but this is a message they're pretty comfortable with. Yeah, because it does play into the Facebook is not a monopoly. I think the advertising side of the business is a totally different discussion, mm -hmm. whether they're a monopoly or a duopoly there. Um, but I think in terms of the user base, what they see is that people very quickly will move around. Facebook earnings were yesterday. They made a lot mm -hmm. of money, as we all expected. Uh, less affected by uh, maybe the Apple stuff than we thought they were going to be. Go back and forth on that. There was some line I saw coming out of Mark Zuckerberg's comments about how he's focusing exclusively now on 18 to 29-year-olds. Did he mean that for the entire Facebook family of apps, FOA, or do they call it now? Or, or is he talking about Facebook itself and how to save Facebook? He was talking about all the apps. He said that all of the product teams are reorienting around um, focusing on young adults. Um, and uh, I think probably what happened is they saw these stories, mine and some others hit. And investors are interested always in these kind of metrics and what the users are actually doing. And um, Facebook kind of sees this as population control. And if their audience is, is dying, to put it bluntly, that's a long-term health issue for their business. And so I think he was wanting to say, look, we know this is a problem. All of my teams, I'm telling to focus exclusively on this. And um, I mean, I've seen a lot of these internal documents from the last year that totally back this up. They're doing cross-functional work streams on targeting teens. But again, I, I, the presentations are incredibly cringe. It's a pretty <laughs> interesting tension that, that lots of successful companies eventually have, right? Which is our existing product is popular with a bunch of people, but and we don't we want to find a new set of consumers, but we want to keep the existing consumers happy, right? Um, me and the other oldsters who are posting kid pictures, 
we're using Facebook, right? We don't want a brand new version of Facebook that just the kids use. Maybe we do. Who knows? Um, let me ask you about the story behind the story, um, starting with the fact that um, you wrote about this data, and my former colleague Kurt Wagner over at Bloomberg wrote about the same data. Maybe other folks wrote about it as well, uh, which I think speaks to the nature of sort of the semi-controlled chaos of this project. Explain explain how you and Kurt Wagner and I think maybe a dozen publications total got access to this stuff at the beginning. Yeah, um, this was a very bizarre process. Um, we've all been in a Slack that is quickly expanding um, because more publications are now getting added after the embargo break uh, Monday morning. And we all just got a bunch of documents in a Google Drive that's getting uploaded every day like a bag of goodies. We don't know what's in it. And um, all the publications are completely free to uh, cover them however they see fit. So the, the people that, assembling the documents are Frances Haugen and her team, right? This is a version of stuff they've already submitted to the SEC? Yeah, so these are redacted documents, um, not fully redacted. So there are, we've had some concerns with what do we publish because sometimes there are low-level employee names in there that we're trying to be careful or not put into the public record. Um, but these are redacted, mostly versions of these documents, uh, over 10,000 pages, that Haugen's counsel has provided to the SEC um, and to Congress. And then they're, they're doling these out to you guys. Is there a rhyme yeah. or reason to sort of what documents you get on any given day? No. Um, <laughs> and, and it's kind of frustrating, actually, because um, you could just open the drive uh, each day and have no idea what's going to be there. It could be incredibly boring. A lot of these documents are pretty mundane. It's a lot of, you know, comments on Workplace, which is Facebook's internal version of Facebook that employees use. Um, and then there's like something pretty incredible, like, um, you know, a presentation to Mark Zuckerberg about a controversial initiative, right? And, and is there any guidance from Haugen and her team about saying, hey, check this thing out on page four here. That's the real smoking gun. Well, it was originally kind of divided up into these SEC whistleblower complaints. She filed seven or eight of them, and they're all on kind of different parts of the business and problems she thinks that investors and the public should know about. And I'm not sure all of them actually matter to the SEC, to be perfectly honest, but that's a whole other topic. But yeah, there was a theme there where, you know, there were some kind of off the record conversations with her and her team about them before the the big Monday break. But now it's really just a free for all. And uh, I would say that they set it all up and they kind of like let us go. And then it was really up to the media members right. to decide um, how they covered what and who came into the consortium. So. This sounds a bit, and in an uncomfortable way, like 2016, 2015 WikiLeaks data dump where reporters, whoever was daring enough to click on a, on a random link from Guccifer, whoever it was, uh, just got a bunch of files. And you had to sort of guess at why you were being given them and what was in them. Ben Smith wrote about this tension here uh, between bunch of reporters wanting to work with the whistleblowers, giving them a lot of documents versus a worry that you're being steered one way or another. But you you think you pretty much have been, there's no guardrails on what you're reporting and you could report on whatever you want and ignore whatever you want. Yeah, there's no guardrails at all. Um, and to be honest, I would have preferred just a massive doc dump at once of everything, you know, mm -hmm. with like a three to four week lead time. I think the way that they're doling these out where they're getting uploaded every day through, I think it's early November. Um, and now it's a free for all. There's no embargo on anything. And by the way, the embargo was actually set by the consortium in terms of the timing of it. The consortium and is you, the, news, the, the various publications. The media organizations. So you're, you're going to be getting a daily dump of documents, uh, you said, through November, early November? Yeah, and I don't know the exact date, but that's what we've been told. And so I mean, it's uh, obviously a week or so, at, at least, of more data dumps, let alone weeks of stories. Correct. And... You know, this is obviously designed to maximize the pain. Um, Francis is, you know, she has a very good PR team and she's doing a world tour talking to regulators. And these are kind of giving her fuel to whatever she's saying in public, which, you know, I'm trying to separate the docs from her because the docs are, you know, they don't really pertain to her necessarily what she was saying internally, but I, I'm a Facebook beat reporter. And anytime I can see a lot of internal documents, I'm all about it. Gizmodo, which I think was not in the initial consortium, uh, has a piece today about that we're just, they're just going to start putting up docs as they get them. And they said, by the way, one of the things about the docs is these aren't really docs. These are photos of screenshots. Is that, is that the case for all this stuff? 
Yeah. So you're you're actually yeah. not and, you're not looking at PDS. You're looking at you're looking at someone and took a camera in front of a computer and and Francis Francis did that. Um, and is so, that is that everything? Like can, she, is that everything she submitted to the SEC was 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 compiled that way? She sat in front of a computer for days on end. Based on what I've seen, Peter, I've looked at hundreds and hundreds of these. Yes, um, there's times where like you can see literally see her and her blonde hair and the uh-huh. reflection and like her Puerto Rico beach house, like the backdrop wow. of the window. Um, yeah, she took a lot of phone pictures, it looks like, um, which is like, that's good OPSEC for leaking. I would recommend if anyone wants to leak to but me. But that's a lot of time. It's a lot of time. Um, I saw Donny Sullivan at CNN printed a lot of it out, and it was a pretty massive stack, which, you know, bad for the environment, Donny. Come on. Um, but, yeah, um, it's a lot. There's, like I said, over 10,000. And, again, I would, I would put <laughs> – it's weird because a lot of it is – like I said, very mundane, not in the public interest, a lot of very technical terms, engineer type terms that no one understands, very specific things about the newsfeed algorithm that I think any competitor to Facebook would find incredibly interesting, but the public would not. Um, so there's, there's an element of this where like the interest in uploading them raw to the internet is actually going to be, I think, more of interest to like competitors. Like I can imagine Snaps having a field day here, but um the public, what I tried to do with the teen story was build a narrative around all this stuff because um, a lot of this is very granular. So let's get super meta for a second. So one, there is, uh, you said, I, you know, she's doing this to maximize pain means there's going to be stories for weeks on end. Well, she, um, I want to be clear. She hasn't said that. Yeah, that's, that's my that's read on the strategy. Yeah. But, you know, a common human reaction that I've had and I've seen other people had in the last couple of days is, how are we possibly going to even read these stories um, and keep track of them? Protocol has just a, a link to, I think, uh, several dozen of them. There's more coming out every day. I know you, I know you are not in the, the comms world either for Francis Haugen or for Facebook, but are you cons- as a writer, are you concerned that your work is going to get swamped if there are literally hundreds of these stories and no one's going to pay attention to any particular one? Yeah, it's why I did the teen story first, because I knew that um, given how um, a lot of my peers are approaching the Facebook beat lately, that the disinformation international angle was going to be the thing that pretty much every mainstream publication leaned hard into. And that's exactly what happened. And I think what the effect was is that it was just a giant like noise machine. And sure, a lot of people read those publications, but it's hard to discern what is new and everything. And and so I took, I tried to take something, you know, hats off to Kurt, had the same idea that um, was a little unique for the first kind of drop. But um, there's a lot of interesting stuff in here that has not been reported on yet. So I think we're going to see a lot more. And that idea of, of Snap is going to be psyched when they see this stuff. Um there is a call from the from the get-go. Alex Kantrowitz just put out a piece saying, I'm in the consortium and I can see all the docs and we should make these available to everyone. Again, you're not Frances Haugen, so she's got her own agenda. But but why why do you think she's initially gave them to a dozen publications and why not just put them up on random file server and let everyone have at it? That's the uncomfortable part of this, which is that um, there are things that are happening with her and kind of her agenda that the docs are fueling and you know she was in the uk meeting with regulators at the exact same time the initial embargo and all this lifted and she published an article in the telegraph that i mostly don't agree with that same day saying that encryption is bad essentially so she's kind of becoming a um spokesperson for a lot of these issues that um she's wanting to hit home on with regulators and the documents give her that kind of that power um, and the kind of media attention because her name is in every outlet under the sun. So, um, yeah, I don't exactly remember how you frame that question, but I would just say that there is this kind of uncomfortable tension with the documents themselves, which are inherently newsworthy. Is there anything that prevents you, the- prevents you or anybody else from saying, here are all the documents that we have so far, we're going to publish them on The Verge, you can look at them? No, and we've talked about it, and we did put some on our DocuCloud for, we did a takeaway story on, we actually waited a few hours after the embargo because we knew it would happen, that everything would hit at once and everyone would be overwhelmed. So we waited a few hours and did a kind of initial, you know, here are some eight interesting things yep. we found. Um, and we linked to some documents on our own DocuCloud that we re-uploaded and made sure were properly scrubbed. But that takes time. And these are, there's a lot of pages, a lot of names, 
they did do a mostly good job of redacting, but there's a huge concern about doxing. And I mean, I've heard internally at Facebook that researchers there are getting identity protection and very concerned that their names are going to be out there. And, and so I'm very aware of that. And, you know, if, even if we can recreate things to make, and cause again, these screenshots don't, they don't look good. They're like Francis taking a picture with her phone of a computer screen. Uh, so they're not, you know, something that you would want to look at. They're not pretty, but they're um, obviously very interesting. Last, because I, I promised a quick interview and we're already going late here, but but I want to make sure that I understand what the documents are. Again, there's screenshots she took. Based on the reporting so far that I've seen, most of it seems to be coming from conversations either had more or less in public at Facebook, you know, and on whatever the, the equivalent of the main Facebook Slack that anyone could respond to. And then a lot of stuff that came from security, privacy, social well-being research team, people who obviously have a certain perspective. They took a certain job there at Facebook. What I haven't seen yet is anything that reflects like Here's how the business side of Facebook viewed it, or here are Mark Zuckerberg's thoughts. Is there stuff that's going to reflect that, do you think, or this is all going to sort of come from one sector of Facebook? Based on what I've seen, she did a crawl of Workplace, which is where Facebook hosts all this research, all these comments. Um, and there's a lot of presentations, lengthy presentations, some dating back to 2016, a lot of them fairly recent, a lot of them from earlier this year. I would say the vast majority come from the Integrity Org, which is where content moderation happens and all of the product stuff like the, um, you know, the COVID help center and all that stuff that they build. Um and the the org that has been obviously the leakiest um and so that was her org she was in a part mm -hmm. of civic integrity um and but they know they span they span huge parts of the company there's instagram product presentations um i haven't seen a ton of whatsapp stuff i haven't seen pretty much anything from frl which is their ar vr division which i selfishly would like to see um that division has its entirely own morale um but uh yeah they span a huge amount of the company and they're like i said there's some presentations to mark zuckerberg about you know things like instagram's plan to hide likes and the very cutthroat kind of matter of fact reason they didn't that is very different from their kind of public branding of it. So yeah, there are very sensitive things in here. We're not seeing everything, but you feel confident that we are getting enough varied stuff that we're getting. It's not just one point of view on Facebook Inc. and its problems. It's 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 a bunch of different voices and perspectives weighing in on it. Um, I would say that uh, there is a there's obviously a selection bias um, because. A lot of them are focusing on people in integrity saying, you know, we looked into this. This is a problem. We need to do something about it. That's a huge theme. Even the product-y stuff is geared towards uh, something that Facebook is worried about or is a controversy. So, yeah, there is a slant. And, you know, Mark said in earnings yesterday that he thinks this is a coordinated, you know, smear campaign, essentially. Um, and I don't know if I would go that far. Um, you know, there are interesting angles there. But I do, you, you know, you're not just getting like everything right mm -hmm. from the from a time frame. You're getting a selection of things that are very interesting, that are controversial, and things that Facebook is grappling with and struggling with. Um, that doesn't make them any less newsworthy, right. but it is something that I and I know others have been thinking about and is a concern. Okay, uh, Alex Heath, uh, you got a lot more uh, consortium uh, data dumps to go slog through, so go get to it. Thanks for your time. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Alex Heath. In a minute, we're going to talk to Heidi Gardner from SNL. But first, a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, What's a mistake they made that changed their approach? And how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. I'm here with Heidi Gardner, who came into the city on a rare day off, because normally her day job is working at Saturday Night Live. Welcome, Heidi. Thank you for having me. Thank you for coming. I feel very guilty for making you come into Manhattan. No, this is a treat. It is a treat to be on my podcast. <laughs> um, so you have been on the show for five years? Yes. Do I have the date right? Okay, good. Yep. So normally it's like a seven-year deal, is that? Normally it's a seven-year deal, yep. Okay, so we'll, well, in two years we'll ask you what's going to happen. Okay, perfect. <laughs> um, I want to start off with this. I told people I'm going to talk to you today. Okay. Said, oh, that's great. I love the thing she was in yesterday, and they all sent me the same sketch. Okay. Do you want to guess what it was? Was it Brutal Marriage Movie? Brutal Marriage Movie. <laughs> I work late tonight. You work late every night. From the producer of Marriage Story. Hey. Hey. And the studio that brought you scenes from a marriage. And the stunt team from Blue Valentine. Let me. Don't. Ow. I'm sorry. You're always sorry, Nate. Comes another film that shows you what a bummer it is to share your life with another person. Brutal Marriage Movie. It's a great parody of Marriage Story and everything else. And I didn't realize it wasn't on the show. It didn't air on the show. It just exists on the internet. Yes. It was one of those things. It made it onto the show, but sometimes things get cut for time, and Brutal Marriage movie got cut for time. So you guys famously make a lot of stuff. Not all of it gets on air. Some gets cut. Just like I'm just repeating what you just said. Um, but in the old days, it would never show up on the internet. It never got distributed. Now it does. When something like that happens, describe the emotions. I'm assuming you want it to be on the air. For sure. Right? That's page 1A. That's page 1. And so you take the hit a little bit and, <laughs> and your heart breaks uh, a little or a lot because, yeah, it's something that you made and came from you. And a lot of people worked so hard on it. And so you're sad. And then you're like, well, maybe they'll release it online tomorrow and people will still see it. And usually they will do that because it's like, yeah, so much went into like— We got stuff. Why don't we show it? Exactly. So it feels slightly less good that it doesn't get on air. But then when it's out in the internet, do you know if—like I think a lot of people I know— I was even talking to a professional comedy person. I said, oh, I didn't even realize that wasn't on the show. I just was watching it via YouTube and assumed it was on air. Do you think the general internet audience knows or cares that this was on the show, this wasn't? Does that matter to them? Yeah, it's interesting because I think when you're working on SNL and you're just in the bubble and everything is so important to you, it's, you know, my narrative is like, they know, like, you know, or my family knows. I, it didn't make it, you know? And then it was funny because— I don't even know the next day when it gets released, but I remember waking up Sunday morning, and I can never really sleep in on Sunday, so I'm usually up early anyways. And I think one of my best friends, Michelle, had texted me at like 8.30 in the morning, and she was like, I saw a brutal marriage movie, you know, and I was like, oh, she probably thinks it was on the show, so. And do you, I'm, I'm assuming you got better things to do, but are you like tracking views and trying to see how popular it is and if it's breaking out, or are you just do your thing? I try to just do my thing. Um, I try to, you know, I think my first season at SNL, of course, you dig a little bit, like, what do people think of this thing or that thing? And I realized really quickly you can read, you know, a hundred good things, and that's so kind and wonderful, and then you read the one bad thing, and it, like, you know, breaks your heart. You read the comments. Yes, yeah. yes. And sometimes you can't avoid reading the comments because sometimes someone will actually tag your name on Instagram and say something mean about you. I think I had that yesterday just, yeah, because it was like a comment and it was like, seems like Heidi Gardner is always playing a like unhappy middle-aged woman going through something. Like, is something, has anyone checked in on her? And I'm like, yeah. It's so concern that, trolling, I <laughs> yeah, think is what we call it. I was, I was I was doing my, my like Googling last week. You don't, you're on Twitter, but you don't tweet at all, it looks like. Yes. You yes. are on Instagram. Yes, but I don't—I have a new thing on Instagram. I don't scroll at all. <laughs> I um, erase the app daily. I re-download it to check my messages because, you know, I have friends that I communicate with mostly on that. And then I'll check a few, like, stories, you know, and then— What's, but I more, don't what's more fraught for you, being recognized on the street and, like, having to have a real-life interaction with someone who knows you from TV or interacting with a nameless, faceless person on the Internet? You know what? Actually, if either one makes me very happy, if the experience is kind of 
surrounded with love on both ends. Like, I always feel super touched when someone wants to, like, approach me or as a fan. And I, it's still very weird for me. And I, I don't know how this comes across saying it, but I'm always very surprised when someone comes up to me that they're a fan of mine because that's just a weird experience to have as a person. But I will say when I was a kid and I got to meet anyone that I loved, it didn't just make my day. It made like half my year or the year. So it's really important to me to be open to that experience and like give my time and my love. So either way, if it's on the internet or in person, it's just important to me. You've you've been there five years now. Does it ramp up year after year in terms of how often you get recognized, how often people are interacting with you sort of? recognizing what you are and what you do? Yeah, it's funny. It, like, it ramped up, and then masks happened, and then it, like, took a huge plummet. And so now it does feel um, like it's happening all over again, like, in a new way. And that's— recognize what you look like just from the eyes above? Yeah, yeah, that happened, like, maybe twice. But what's kind of cool is I'm—I like that there was a break in there of masks and you couldn't recognize anyone because when it was first kind of happening— I'm kind of a shy person, so if I could tell someone recognized me and or but wasn't sure from where, I would never want to like be boastful and be like They're kind of circling out. around you in the Starbucks trying to figure out who you are. Yeah, and so I wouldn't want to be and so even people would be like, "Do I know you from somewhere?" and I was like, "No," and they're like, "No, I do." And they'd be like, "Was it school?" and I would be like, "I think it's SNL, but I don't know. I don't want to say it." It was awkward, and I didn't know how to handle it. And now I'm a little bit coming more into my own where I can tell. I immediately say, like, yes, um, it's SNL, or, oh, I'm on SNL. And then um, I can even be like, do you want to take a picture together? Like, I try oh, to— you go, you go all—have you, you ever said, I'm from SNL? And they go, no, 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 it's from high school. For sure. I've ha- I had one recently. I was with all my high school girlfriends. I was back home in Kansas City. We had all, like, been having drinks and dinner together. And at the very end, the waiter was dropping the check. And he was like, also, are you— And I could see all my girlfriends get excited— and I was like, and they're going to see me come into my own because I am going to say, yes, I am her. Um, he goes, are you the woman that came in last week that thought it was Tuesday <laughs> wine night and it was Wednesday and you were trying to get like the half off wine on Tuesday? And I was like, no, but I mean, she sounds like someone I would play. You I got mean, that like, wine mom energy going. <laughs> yes. It's great. Yeah. So you mentioned COVID. Um, we talked briefly about you not coming in normally on Monday as you used to. So what, this is the second season you guys have done sort of full COVID. Yeah. So last year, I know you guys talked a lot about sort of how difficult it was and social distancing and figuring stuff out. I'm assuming it's a lot easier this time around. It, there are things that are easier. I mean, definitely I was probably overly optimistic and like at the beginning of this fall. This fall, even last summer, I was kind of like, we won't be wearing masks. Yeah, it's where we all were, right? Yeah. Like, yay, COVID's done. Yeah. So I think I even thought, well, we probably won't be getting tested or I'm, you know, I'm vaccinated. Um, but yeah, tests, daily tests are still in place. Masks are in place. I had to get tested to talk to you. Yes. Yeah. Um, we, and thank you. <laughs> um, I'm negative, by the way. <laughs> I'm negative, too. So we're, right. we're safe here. And then we wear masks still during the table read all throughout the week. Basically, until the live show. So, and it's famously collaborative and staying up late and people crammed into rooms, making stuff up and kind of delirious. I assume some of that goes away and gets replaced by Zoom, or is that been put back together now? Yes. So, I kind of felt like last year that was definitely famously away. I wrote mostly from home last year on Zoom, which, you know, just like everyone, you get comfortable with, like, I'm like, Okay, I prefer writing from my bed. I'm comfortable here. This is um, better. Oh, like, you know, I'm a writer. If I if I have an idea, like, it's kind of the Zoom thing's hard. I'll just write it on my own. I got a little comfortable, I think, that way. And so this season, it is safer just to be around people. People are vaccinated now. Uh, we're still all masked, but, like, I go in on writing night. I want to be around Can people. you opt out of that? Can Are people like, actually, you know what, I don't want to go in or I totally. have a special condition or I just, frankly, just don't want to deal with yes. masks? It's kind of like not nothing's mandatory anymore. It's like you get your work done how you want to get your work done. Yeah. Do you guys think that in some post-COVID future there are parts of this production process that will 
stick around and maybe things don't have to be done the way they were done for the last 45, 47 years? I think so. I mean, I think it gives the actual person a lot more freedom to decide what's best for them. But I also would say, like, that should come along with a little bit of, like, self-introspection. Like I was saying, I was super comfortable working from home and feeling, like, equipped and, like, maybe a little bit in my own ego. Like, I can write that myself. And I was like, no, I think I got a little bit too comfortable. And it's, like, fun to collaborate. Do I love collaborating at 3.30 in the morning? I do not. And I don't think I'm a better writer at that time. But— it's one night a week, and I will put myself out is there. That, is that still happening in COVID? Yeah. People, there's still yeah. 3.30 sessions. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's wild. But I like to just, like, buffer it a little earlier. I like to start my day earlier, so I'm not doing that. Um, can we talk about how you got into this business? There's a there's a traditional path to SNL. It usually involves going to Harvard, mm-hmm. going to Lampoon. <laughs> yes. Um, there's people coming from Chicago and, and Second City or Upright Citizens Brigade in New York City and Groundlings in L.A., and that is you, mm-hmm. but you didn't have the traditional route. So how did you get here? So I got here. Um, now I like to say that my kind of Harvard Lampoon <laughs> was just my – childhood in the Midwest and being super obsessed with movies, TV, comedy, SNL, pop culture, music. I mean, in the Midwest, like Hollywood, all those things just seem so far away. Like, I don't even think I knew where they even came from. They were just on TV. Yeah, they were just on TV and you just became obsessed with them and quoting them. And like, so I was that like, kid who was definitely more obsessed with like movies and by high school indie movies and indie comedy and what was your what was your thing um I mean I always say my thing was I had a babysitter when I was six years old my parents were like kind of freshly divorced and it was my dad's new girlfriend's roommate and she was cool um and she was babysitting while my dad was out with his new girlfriend And I was six years old, and she was like, okay, like, what do you want to do? You want to play, like, with Barbies or something? And I was like, can we watch Spinal Tap? And she was like, what? Um, And I was like, you know, that movie where it goes to 11. And she was like, what are you doing watching Spinal Tap? Um, That was my— Yeah. I went to see Spinal Tap in the theater. You did? My mom took me and my friend. I don't know what my mom was thinking. Love it. Love it. And it was, I just remember the guy at the ticket counter said, you know, no one is seeing this movie. We don't think you'll like it. <laughs> you could see Conan the Barbarian is happening at the same time. Wow. Like, I will go see that. It's great. I only half understood at the time, too. Yeah. It, yeah. I, I don't know what I, it's so funny looking back at so many movies that you love as a kid. And I'm like, what parts was I understanding? Like, I only now got that, like, butt cheeks joke and planes, trains, and automobiles. Like, seriously, two years ago. And it's one of my favorite movies. But I always kept having that re- reaction where you hear the adults in the room laugh. Yeah. So you laugh and you're just like, I guess it's funny. I don't get it. So you grew up inhaling pop culture. Inhaling. Does not occur to you that this is a job you can do? No, in no way. And also the only sort of like acting in Kansas City felt like that I was seeing as a kid was there was this thing called the Coterie Theater where it was, like, you know, kid actors. And, like, we would go on field trips and we would see, like, the Coterie Theater kids, like, present Benicula, like, that book from when you are a kid. And I was like, those are—those they seemed like elite children, like, rich kids. I don't know if they were, but, like, it just seemed like another—they were on another— Probably not hard-scrabble young actors. Yes, yes. Um, So, yes, just was not an option for me. But, you know, when any, like, any concert was in town in Kansas City— I was always going to them. I was waiting in line all day long to be in the front. Um, Not like in a creepy, like, groupie style, but like Tenacious D would come. And it was like, this is my Missouri chance to see Jack Black and Kyle Gass. Like, or I remember Keanu Reeves came and played with his band Dog Star. And it's like, Keanu Reeves, and I even remember like my girlfriends, I was like, Keanu Reeves is in town. And they're like, well, it's not for a movie, it's for his band. I'm like, it doesn't matter, it's Keanu Reeves. So anyhow, like, just always trying to get my foot in the door of just seeing this world. And then I went to college, and I I went to KU, and I was in the, like, film and theater studies. So you had some inkling this is sort of what you wanted to do. Yeah, but it was so weird because I, like, the the film school 
classes that I was in were just basically watching movies. And I was like, well, I already do this all the time. <laughs> and also these are like kind of like, I mean, I just recently rewatched The Last Picture Show and loved it. But it's like when you're 18 and it's like a three and a half hour movie in college, it's like, I don't want to do this. And then I was somehow, the only other classes they had at KU were like costume design and lighting design. And like, Yes, I I was in a lighting design class and quickly realized, like, I'm not going to do this. I don't understand it. There's actually a lot of math involved. And so I dropped out of school because I was spending a lot of money and I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And I happened to, at the time, my roommate was like, will you cut my hair? And I was like, sure, why? And she's like, I don't know. You have cool hair. Like, will you just cut it? And I was like, okay. I gave her a haircut. I did a fine job. And then I started cutting all my friend's hair. And they were like, you're good at this. And I was like, okay. What you if I— You just wandered into haircutting? Yeah. I legit, just because one friend one time was like, will you do this? And I'm, I know. I think back about that. And I was like, those were not good haircuts I was giving Significant anyone. risk on their end, right? Yes. So I was just like, I don't know what I'm doing in college. I'm going to drop out. But I had that, like, shame of, like, that sounds bad. All my other friends are in college. So I'm like, okay, well, I don't know. People know I, like, love movies and stuff. So I'm like, I'm going to drop out of school to do hair in L.A. I was like, I'm going to move to L.A. and do it. Um, and was the thought, that's it? And then that that's what you'll do? Or then I'll be around movies and I don't have to go see Keanu Reeves in, in what's his name? I was going to say dog, dog shit. Star. Dog star. <laughs> In his dog band, yeah. I, I can see him on the street, and that's cool. Um, I bet that was a little bit of it, but I think it was just—I think it was just this thing of like, I will be doing something that sounds big, mm -hmm. and not something about. And now I don't believe this at all because so many people, successful people I know, dropped out of school and are like flourishing and like living their life and their passions. But at that time, I was just so scared because that was the only model I had. So I was like, this is going to sound bad. So I need to add the, like, in L.A. to it to make it sound legit. That you're not just going back and, and living in your parents' basement. And, yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So you do that. So I do that. I move there. I end up um, meeting my husband, Zeb, who at the time, he's a writer. And he had just uh, started working on the show Robot Chicken. And he met another writer on that show, Hugh Davidson, who was like, uh, hey, my girlfriend Rachel and I are in an improv show at the Groundlings tonight. We're Groundlings. Uh, you and your girlfriend Heidi should come see it. And so Zeb comes home and he's like, hey, that writer I like Hugh invited me to see him and his girlfriend in a show. It's at the Groundlings. And I immediately was like, oh, like, well, You Ferrell. knew what the Groundlings were. You knew For the whole sure. history. But something so weird, something about me just didn't, again, the Midwest, like, not knowing where these things existed. I was like, I didn't know that was here. Like, just like oh, that's what five happens. miles away. Yeah. So we go. We see the improv show on a Thursday night. I'm like, that's the funniest thing I've ever seen in my life. My actual first thought was I was like, oh, this is so good when, like, friends or family come to visit L.A. I finally have, like, a we have to go to this thing. That was, like, my initial thought. So then Rachel and Hugh are like, hey, if you like the improv show so much, we are in a sketch show on Saturday night. This Saturday, you guys should come. It's like a mini SNL. It's like a bunch of sketches, uh, two-hour show. I was like, whoa, that sounds cool. So we go to that. Rachel and Hugh are fantastic. But it was also when Melissa McCarthy was still in the Groundlings. Mm -hmm. And this is like six months before Bridesmaids came out. So we see her. She's unknown at that point, basically, <laughs> unless you know who the groundlings are. Yes, unknown. And Zeb and I were just like, holy shit, like, why isn't this the most famous person in the world? Why isn't this person on SNL? Right. Like, we're going to go home and watch SNL. This lady was funnier. Like, um, and then, you know, six months later, Bridesmaids comes out and the whole world makes sense again. But I see that sketch show again. I'm just like, oh my God, this is so awesome. And. So I, I tell my friend Rachel, who's in the Groundlings, I'm like, oh, th that was amazing. She was like, why don't you take a class? You know, you're really funny. Because I used to leave her, like, messages on her voicemails, like, as characters. I didn't know what I was doing. But she was like, you're funny. I can tell you can do characters. And I was like, but I'm not an actor. And she was like, just just think about it. And so I, I talked to 
Zeb about it. And he was like, Heidi, like, he had taken an improv class because at that time, everyone in L.A. was taking improv classes. He was like, Heidi, I sucked at it. And the whole time I was doing it, I was thinking Heidi would be so good at this. And I was still like, I don't know. So I called my older brother, Justin, who's always been my biggest cheerleader supporter. I was like, Justin, I'm like thinking about taking an improv class. He was like, Heidi, I've been waiting for you to say this since we were like 10 years old. I will pay for the classes. And I was like, oh, you're so sweet. So I took that. And then I just, with no plan, because I was just taking an intro level improv class, I just kept taking these classes, you know, moving up the levels of Groundlings, which I didn't even understand at the There's time. There's a whole, you start at this level, and you pay, you're paying for all these classes, and you keep going and going and going and yes. advancing, and there's a usually like a touring group eventually you can be part of. Yeah, there's the Sunday company and then the main company of Groundlings, and like the first thing is you're just trying to make it into the Sunday company. And I remember when I was in a pretty high level there, one of my classmates was like, so, um, are you know, you want to make Sunday company? And I was like, Oh, I don't I don't know what that is. And he was like, What are you doing here? And I was like, Oh, well, there's this show at the time. There was a show there at the Groundlings called The Black Version, where uh like Jordan Peele and Keegan Michael Key and like all these other amazing black improvisers would perform, they would do the black version of like a movie suggestion mm-hmm. that they got from the audience. So like the first one I ever saw was Black to the Future. And they would do it every Monday night. It was the funniest thing ever. The first half, they would, like, act out the actual movie. And then the second half, they would do, like, the deleted scenes. The director, Karen Murayama, was just incredible. Gary Anthony Williams, funniest show in the world. So basically, I say to this friend, they're like, you want Sunday Company, right? And I'm like, no, I don't know what that is, but I love the black version. And they're like, you know you can't be in that. <laughs> and I was like, no, I I know, but that's what I just keep on. What it, I, that's what I keep coming to see. But you're in L.A., which is where everyone goes to pursue a Hollywood career. That's what you say you don't want to do. And then you're in the Groundlings, which you don't have to be pursuing an SNL job. But the people who are going to SNL go through there. Yes. It's serious. It's competitive. When does it click in like, oh, this is what I'm doing, actually? Yeah. So— I, I learn how to write sketches. I make it to Sunday Company. I, I go to see some Sunday Company shows, and I'm like, oh, yeah, I do want that. <laughs> that is what I want. And so I get into Sunday Company. I'm still working at the hair salon. At this point, I'm a, I'm a hairstylist with a full clientele, and Sunday Company is consuming my life. It is like a mini SNL. You're pitching sketches every week. You're writing. You're meeting up with people all like, all week long to write you find out what sketches you get in the show for Sunday. You go, you, like, source all your wigs, all your wardrobe. It's taking up all your time. And the time. people who are doing it with you are doing it for a reason, right? They want to progress to something else? I, I think so, too. Yeah. Like, I mean, everyone, I, I believe, at that point was an actor, you know, like, of some sort. I don't think anyone I was in the company with at the time had just, like, a normal day job like I did. And so I— And also, you're not getting paid doing any of this. It's for the passion and the love, and that is all there. Everybody loves it so much. So I'm not making money, but I am making money at the salon that's paying for all these wigs and props and shit. But whenever somebody—it got to this point where I would come to work, and I would see that I had, like, a full day of paying clients, and I would get pissed. I was like, oh, my God, I have to, like, go buy a wig, like, or I've got to meet up to write this sketch. I cannot—I do not want to do hair color. And I just realized, like, I have to quit because people take their hair real seriously, and I need to be present for that as well. And if I'm annoyed that they're about to pay me um, for their time, I can't do this anymore. So I ended up quitting the salon, which was a shock to so many of my clients because I never told them I was, like, doing this thing as a hobby just because I was—I guess I didn't want them to think I was, like, pulled in the other direction— so a lot of my clients, when I told them, like, hey, I want, I'm I'm leaving the salon, they were like, okay, we'll follow you. And I was like, no, I'm, I'm like, <laughs> leaving, <laughs> leaving the salon. And they're like, to do what? And I'm like, um, and I didn't consider myself an actor at that time, and I didn't know how to say it. So I was like, to pursue comedy? And they're like, are you funny? And I was like, well, not here, but I think I am out there. And they're like, no, like, you moved to L.A., 
you did the opposite. You did not come out here to be an actor. Do not do that. Do not. And I was like, I, I think I have to because I like it. And I was like, also, I, I don't think I'm an actor, though. I think I'm just the, a, a sketch person, you know? And so what did you think was going to happen then, that you were going to stop doing that? You were going to do comedy, sketch, improv full time? Like, what did, what did success look like to you? Well, it only looked like the model I had of— other people that I was in the company with at that time. And it seemed like they would, like, they would book a pilot or they would book, um, I don't know, guest starring roles. Acting jobs on TV. Acting jobs, yeah. And it was just, like, that's how you make your money. Or commercials, too. So, you know, I I ended up getting a manager and an agent, and I would get auditions every so often. And it's like I knew SNL was out there, but it just seemed like, so far-fetched. Were you watching it back then? It goes in waves. The people, like, are really into it, and they're not. And I think a lot of it has to do with—has nothing to do with the show. It's just what age you are yes. and what you're doing with your with your Saturdays, frankly. Yeah. I was not watching it as much at that time because I was just at the Groundlings late at night. and like, But, you know, if you heard about a sketch that really hit the night before, I would always look it up. And um, so I, I was one of those waves where I wasn't, like, so fully committed as, like, when I was 13. And then I know everyone's got a different audition story, but eventually you get tapped and brought in. Mm-hmm. Was, was it sort of one round, and you, did you have to go for it multiple times, or did they come out and they asked you to come on, and kind of that was it? So they came to Groundlings, and they saw—I was a Groundling at they, that point, and they put me into the showcase they did with Sunday Company, because typically they see Sunday Company because they're like, oh, up-and-comers. And they put me into that showcase, So, and that's when, like, the producers come and watch and, like, some of the writers— so it felt really good because I got to do five minutes at Groundlings, which felt like home, you know, your um, home field advantage there. And then I found out about two weeks later, hey, they want you to come out and test uh, in New York at SNL, and you can do exactly what you did at Groundlings. Just did, do that. And I was like, okay, cool. Like, they were like, you know, if you want to change a couple things, do it, but— and as someone who's sort of like, I didn't set out to do this. I didn't move to L.A. to do comedy. I didn't get into comedy to be on SNL. You're like, I can't believe this. This is overwhelming. You're like, it's not what I wanted to do to begin with. So I'm, I kind of, you know, it's okay. It, it, I, it, it really meant a lot to me yeah. at that point. It had gotten to the point where it was like, um, I don't. It's scary when, like, you don't get the things that you really want because it was like, who will I be if I don't get this? And how many people am I actually—that's also you have to make this choice. Like, how many people am I going to share with that I'm auditioning for SNL because that's the amount of people I'm going to have to tell I didn't get it, too. You know, it's like—it's very tricky because just so much of yourself is in it. Um, So it definitely meant the world to me. I really wanted it. I go out to New York, I do the audition, and um, I felt good right after, but then, you know, panic sets in, and you're like, oh, I think I did this wrong in this, and I didn't get a meeting. You know, you always hear, like, if you get a meeting with Lauren, that's a good sign. Like, I didn't get a meeting, but I also heard that, like, no one got a meeting, and I was like, okay, we're all on the same level. And then I heard a few days later, hey, they want you to come back, but this time you have to do— a totally new five minutes, like Give all, something new. Yes, and that was like, oh my god, that that first one I did was like all my like a material. Like, what am I gonna do? And then that was a beautiful thing where I was able to. At that point, I was performing at the Groundlings so much. Like, I'd quit the salon. The Groundlings was my job, but for free. And I had done so many like. Uh, preview shows where you're just trying out sketches and the sketch doesn't work and it breaks your heart, but you're like, something in that character worked, you know? So I had to go back through all my, like, loser sketches and be like, but wait, that was a good character. Or, like, for those 30 seconds, I remember people, like, liking that. And so it was really cool because my second audition, I'm a huge sports fan, my second audition was, like, all my, like, bench players, like, getting to, like, play and that's just so special to me because they worked, you know, like that. All your JV characters and sketches. And yeah, that. like that was – but again, I do the audition with all my bench players. And again, I don't get a meeting. And this time I'm like leaving the hotel and I'm seeing people coming back from 30 Rock that I auditioned with who had gotten meetings, you know. I go home and I don't hear anything for like 10 days and – You know, my husband had been positive the whole time. He was like, babe, you're getting it. I know you're getting it. I know you're getting it. 
But by the ninth day of just radio silence, he was like, so you're probably not getting it. Do they ever give you a – like if you don't get in, do they call you up and tell you that or you just never get the call? I think probably your reps get a call, yeah, like your okay. agent or manager. And, yeah, my manager wasn't hearing anything, and I was just like, okay, it didn't happen. And then on the 10th day, I had gone to the grocery store to just – I didn't need groceries, but I wanted to walk down the cereal aisle because I was like – I don't know. The boxes are happy and pretty, and like I just want to like be the in Cheerios a different. Cheerios will lift me to a different place. Yes, I was p- specifically thinking of like Fruit Loops. I was like, I just want to see happy boxes around me, <laughs> and it's just like an aisle, a tunnel of happiness. I feel like, and across from the cereals are like fruit snacks and stuff. So anyhow, I just wanted to be encased in that, and I pull into the parking lot at Gelson's, and um, I have a call come up. And it's a New York number. And I was like, oh, New York, 917. And But then I was like, I had just recently, I must have signed up for something online where I was getting a lot of, like, spam calls. So I was like, I'm going to answer, but I know it's going to be spam. It's a car warranty. Yes. And so I answer, and it was like, um, Heidi Gardner, I've got Lauren Michaels on the phone for you. And then immediately I was like, oh, God, I have to. I don't know what came over me, but I was, like, totally changed into a different woman. And I was like, yes, this is her. Put him through. And she was like – or no, I think I go – I just went, yes, put him through. And she goes, is this Heidi Gardner? And I go, yes. (laughs) So then – This is um, Heidi Gardner's shopping assistant. Yes. So then Lauren comes on, and he's like, hi, Heidi, this is Lauren Michaels, and I'm calling to let you know I'm bringing you on to the cast. And – It is that, like, in the movies, you're speechless. Like, he talked for three minutes. I hadn't said a damn word. and Were you processing what he was saying? Yes, I was processing, and I I couldn't believe it. And finally, I was like, this man just changed my life, and I've said nothing. So then I just, like, screamed. I was like, thank you so much, sir. Like, and he was like, I can tell you're in shock. Um, You know, I'll see you in a couple days. You're moving tomorrow. So, um, you know, see you on Monday. And then I hang up the phone, and the first person I wanted to tell was my husband. And I had remembered him saying he was directing. He had a show at the time, a stop-motion show called Supermansion. He was directing that, and there was something going on uh, with, like, the puppet department at the time, where, like, the puppets weren't up to par or something. And he was— the night before, he—and he's a sweetie, but he was like, I really, you know, tomorrow, like, I've, I've got to, like, really tear a new one on the puppet department. Like, I'm really going to go into this meeting hot, you know? And he was, like, kind of telling me, like, what he was going to say and—or also these demands that he needed more money for puppets and all this stuff. And so I get the call, and I'm like, oh, shit, like, Zeb's about to go into that puppet meeting, and that's going to take a long time because he's he's mad, and so I, I text him. I'm like, hey, babe, um, urgent. And uh, I, I said, I think I know you're in the meeting, but urgent. And he's like, what is it? And I'm like, I don't want to text him. I want to be able to tell him. So I was like, what can, what's urgent? So I was like, um, I forgot the Wi-Fi at the house. And he was like, that is not urgent. I will call you in an hour. And I was like, fuck, I should have done something better. Um, so for an hour, I was the only one you that had, had to sit on it. Yeah, that had the information and— I was I I was doing crazy mind games at that point where I was like, is this real or did I dream? You know, like it was weird to just sit with myself for an hour. It was real though. It was real. You made it. That's 2015 or 2016. 2017. 2017. Yeah. Okay, so it's a full year to Trump, and I can skip most of the dumb Trump questions. But yeah. I'm sure the thing everyone asked you all the time was, how do you parody a world where everything is already parody and nonsensical? Do you have a novel answer to that? I, I mean, I always kind of thought, and this is like no knock to Alec because obviously he was an amazing Trump, but I was like, how do you get funnier than that? Mm-hmm. You know, like it just was like, it was just too, it was just always too crazy. It was like, that was the heightened. It was already like our president, you couldn't. Believe him. Right. And that's the thing in comedy is, like, you want something relatable. It's like when you go too far, it's like, the audience doesn't buy that. And I'm like, we already have that. We're actually, like, 
going, taking it down a notch. And I just, you know, on Twitter every week, oh, wait till SNL gets a hold of this thing. They'll have a field day. And I kept thinking, I don't, do they even want to do that? Like there's five of those things literally happening every day by the end of the week. Who keeps track of it? Did you guys resist wanting to do political stuff because it felt like too hard or there wasn't enough there or there's other stuff to talk about? I think they felt like during that time they just— had to because yeah. I think the audience would have been let down. Obviously, I think everybody like just got tired of it. But I think had we not addressed it, it would have just been a missed opportunity yeah. to so many. And now you can see we have a calmer presidency and the cold opens aren't don't have to do with politics sometimes anymore or like aren't as hard hitting Politically. Do you have a sense of how the audience is responding to it? One, I definitely would like, oh, they're going to do a whatever thing, and I'm going to not watch it live. I can't tell you the last time I watched it live. And, yeah. But I consume – I feel like I consume more SNL than ever the last few years, almost entirely on Twitter and YouTube. They've decided to, like, basically allow you to do it that way. Yeah. Did you have a sense of sort of, like, what the audience res- – what the audience expectations were then and how they're different now? Hmm. I do think – the audience expectations were, like, were all Trump-centric, even if you would have said they were burnt out on it. It was like, but they have to do it. They have, like, it's just, that's always the biggest story. And the biggest story on Monday with Trump would have changed, too. I remember, like, there was some crazy thing with Trump last year during this time on Monday, and then by Friday he had COVID. You know, it was just always changing. And it was so, it was also the show being like, do we address all f- 17 of those things, mm-hmm. or do we just do, like, the most recent? Whereas now I think the audience realizes just how much that was and how, like, burnout they were on that. And now they're just kind of like, oh, this is fun, seeing the cast run in and out. Or You know, this last weekend we did one about, you know, John Gruden, kind of everything that goes on with the yeah. NFL, you know? and so, You're in that sketch? Yeah. Yeah. And sports are, like, can be—not everyone is in on sports. I always think everyone is in on sports, but they're not. So that can kind of be a hard sketch to, like, work on the show sometimes. But, like, this week I thought it was really fun. So what is the sort of guiding—I mean, obviously you want stuff that's funny, but my sense watching it from afar is you guys are very interested in figuring out stuff that a lot of people will know or know of and can get. But it also has to be kind of new and interesting, and so there seems like there's a tension between— not everyone, like there was a sketch you guys did with Elon Musk last year mm-hmm. about uh, the, was it Gen Z? Yes. Gen Z hospital. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And because my kids are now TikTok age, like I picked up a lot of the language, but I know a lot of people my age like had no idea what anyone was talking about. But I think it still went over because they got the idea. But I assume you guys are sort of trying to balance that tension of a lot of people are going to get this John Gruden joke, but maybe two-thirds or half of our audience will have no idea. Totally. Yeah. Even the week before, um, Kim Kardashian hosted, and there was a very Kardashian-eccentric I skipped that one (laughs) because I don't consume any Kardashian. Yeah, and there were so many—it was like two sides of the coin with the writers of so many being like, well, if it's this specific of a joke, like someone like me is not going to get it. And it was like, but look at the ratings for Keeping Up with the Kardashians. There is a pocket of the—a big old pocket of the world that watches that, but do they also watch SNL? But, well, no, probably, but— because she's hosting, they will. So, like, who do—so there is a big flex. And for me as a performer, I don't go political. I barely go topical. I mean, I this last weekend, that marriage movie one was, like, kind of a trendier thing. You, typically but you could have done me. it last year, too. Yeah. Any, any yeah. the last couple of years. I just—I go more towards, like, character and just what I think is funny. How are you thinking—I asked you at the very beginning, like, are you going to be on the show in two years? But, I mean— Regardless of that, Mm -hmm. I'm assuming there's just tons of things coming into you fielded by your manager and agent or maybe directly to you, and you have to decide how much time and energy you want to spend on non-SNL things and how much short-term stuff you want to do versus, I was reading, you're doing a screenplay. Like, how are you compartmentalizing? i got to do this show every week. It's super consuming. With the remaining time I have, how do I want to allocate that? Yeah, so anytime there's... There's an opportunity that just seems like a no-brainer that's fun, like fun character to play in a show or a movie um, or even like even something like this that's like, oh, this is a fun like release. Talk about the show. My friend thought of me for it. You know, your producer. Um, Thank you, Jelani. Yes. Uh, that's, those are like just the easy like 
I have space for those because I love that. Then there's this, like, really personal part of me that's, like, my dream turned into being on SNL and doing characters and sketch. It's what I love more than anything in the world. And, like, I— it's the biggest deal to me, and, like, I want to do everything. I want to thrive on that show in every way. It's also a show where we have, like, over 20 cast members, a lot of mouths to feed, a lot of characters to play. You're not always going to be creatively fulfilled every single week. But I'm learning, like, as an artist, like, but it doesn't stop inside of me. It's like I'm very, very hungry to do those things, and— and get that, like, I know it's just sketch, but, like, get that art out of me, those things that are, like, deep inside me. So I've been working, you know, I'm trying to sell a movie right now. I wrote a screenplay. Like, I want to do my thing in the world wherever I can do it. And and also, like, making this movie would be huge to me. I mean, I'm, like, obsessed with music, obsessed with visual. You know, I can see it in my head. I'm inspired by other comedians and ensembles. Like, And this is a thing you want to do now while you're on the show. It's not, yes. a, I'm going to wait until I have a full runway to do this. I want to do it while I'm on the show, and then I want to, like, keep making things. Do you get advice from, from Lauren Michaels or any other SNL folks about sort of how you should manage this and, you know, pacing stuff out or when, when to do something that's going to be broadly popular versus something that really is just an itch you want to scratch? Yeah, I mean, I had a really great conversation with Adam Sandler recently, who's been, like, so kind and supportive to me, always, like, is a cheerleader if I have a sketch he really likes. And I told him, I was like, yeah, I wrote a movie. And he was like, oh, I'm so happy to hear that. That's exactly what you should be doing. He was like, you're the only one who knows how to write for you the way that you really want to perform, you know, like you, that is so good you did that. And he was like, are you going to direct it? And I was like, no, I mean, I already thought it was too much to ask, like, you wrote myself into my own movie. And he was like, I I was like, I'm I'm not a director, but he was like, but that being said, he was like, you got to be there the whole time. You got to see it like all come to fruition. He was talking to me about Billy Madison and like, even when he would step away and then, like, watch the dailies, it was like, that wasn't how it was supposed to be in my, you know, like, so he just gave me, like, really good advice. Of, like, that's your baby. Like, don't step away. Don't give it to a babysitter. So not to say I would direct, but I would. Does your baby have a name? It's probably bad form to ask. It does have a name, yeah. <laughs> um I, I have I'm like I'm too superstitious. Okay, I okay, sold okay. It I, yet, I, I, so wanted, like... I wanted to see if I wanted to see how far superstition would go. Um, I can't wait to see your movie. Thank one day. you. Um, it was awesome to see you in person. Thank you. Nice to see you too. Society Gardner. Thanks, Heidi. Thank you. Thanks again to Heidi Gardner. Thanks also to Alex Heath. Thanks as always to Joel and Jelani. But like we mentioned in the in the Heidi Gardner podcast. Extra thanks to Jelani for setting this particular interview up. Thanks to our sponsors and thanks to you guys. This is Recode Media. We'll see you next week.